Jonah chapter 4. Wait a minute, I'll do this again. See, I always make this mistake. I'll start in chapter 3, verse 10, just because that also gives the context. All right. When God saw what they did, Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Obey. Amen. How many of you have ever had the experience of talking to somebody who was really passionate about something and you really didn't care? I do this to my wife daily, I think, is a way of life. And and it could be any number of topics, you know, it could be whatever, comic books, you know, computer games, Harry Potter, World War II history, it doesn't really matter, they're pets, you know, whatever. But this person's like really into it. And uh, it's a test of endurance, really, because you could not possibly care less. And um, I find I, I have those kinds of talks. They come up, you know, people will find out I'm a pastor. And they immediately think I'm going to be interested in their weird sort of like pseudo-religious, spiritual, psychological viewpoints and theories. And like, I have to act polite, but like, really, I just want to run, you know, and it's, it's I just want the torture to stop. In any event, when these things happen, it becomes very clear very quickly uh, that what I'm interested in, they're interested in, are like worlds apart, right? Our, our, we have very different priorities, very different interests. Our focuses are very different. And, uh, you know, the things that we care about make us happy and such, right? Uh, they're just irreconcilable. There's nothing really to talk about, which is very different. And, you know, as I read this passage here, and reflect on it, our, our study in Jonah, we're drawing to a close, and we see that Jonah and God are very different in a similar way. Uh, their interests, their focus, their priorities are worlds apart. It's like they're not even speaking the same language. What Jonah cares about and what God cares about are just not the same thing. 
Uh, and I, unlike our human relationships, you know, if someone starts talking about their hobby and you don't care, that's not a moral issue. It's okay that you're not into that thing, but I, and I guarantee you that you have interests that are equally stupid to them, right? But that logic does not apply to our relationship with God. Uh, if God is interested in something and you are not, the problem is with you. And it's not good enough to pretend you find it interesting. He tends to see through that, right? Like, you need to actually get interested. Uh, this morning we were talking in Sunday school about God having his values and priorities. We kind of have to get on the same page with those things. God has a mission. And if your priorities get in the way of that mission, then you need to get new priorities. If your priorities are getting in the way, you probably have an idolatry problem. Jonah has an idolatry problem, which would probably come as news to him. But that's why he's so angry. It's because his idols are being threatened, or in this case, taken away. And what I want to do today is to contrast Jonah's priorities with God's, and I want to invite us to do some introspection as individuals and as a church. And I think, I want us to think about how we need to apply the message of this book. Because as I've said before, it's not an accident this book is in here. You know, I want us to walk away from Jonah with a clear idea of what this means for us today, because it's more than a tale about a man and his sea monster. The book is not about a whale, it's not even about Jonah, it's about God and his mission and how we, his people, resist that mission. And why? It's a book about the message of salvation and the idols that keep us from spreading it. The key idea in Jonah, we've said before, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, that's how Jonah ended his prayer in chapter 2, right? And it was really, that's like his only shining moment in the whole book, right? And I argue that that statement is actually kind of central to the Bible itself, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord and nobody else. And that means a number of things. It means, among other things, that we can't save ourselves. It means we can't save each other. It means God does not save us based on our ethnicity, or our social status, or our church attendance records, or thankfully any of the rest of our track record. We have no control over salvation. Salvation is God's project and does not depend on us in any way. It's like Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So salvation is a God project, exclusively. He does it, he owns it, he makes it happen. It's his thing. And so one might say that God is slightly obsessed with this topic. He talks about it a lot, to the point it might drive some of us crazy. And some of you have wondered how I could have spent this many Sundays on a four-chapter book the way we have, right? I almost did another, but I stopped myself this week. But if you're tired of hearing me labor this point just in this one book, like, I mean, just, you know, imagine listening to God on a subject, right? God, he's fairly repetitive even within this book, isn't he? He, he says a lot of the same things. He, he does a lot of the same things. Like, when he commands Jonah in chapters 1 and 3 to go to Nineveh, he uses, like, identical language. We're repeatedly told that he appoints things. He, he appoints these terrifying and sometimes annoying things to happen to Jonah. Uh, he asks Jonah twice if he does well to be angry in a very similar way, right? He, he's like relentless in this book. He's repetitive. He's obsessed with this mission. It's his passion. 
and Jonah couldn't care less. He doesn't even pretend to be interested in this mission. And that's why God chose to tell this little parable in chapter 4. He wants to make the application obvious for us. And unlike Jesus' parables, this is being acted out in real life and real time. But God does this in part because his mission is not just to save Nineveh. The reason he goes to these lengths is because he's also got a mission to reclaim Jonah by exposing his idols and by extension, exposing ours. So I'm going to start by looking at what makes Jonah particularly angry here at the end of the book. I'm going to look again carefully at verses 5 to 9. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and it came up over and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head, over his head to save him from his discomfort. So, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. We know that idols are, are we, we've said that those are, idols are good things that become God things, right? Things that get the, the priority out of whack. What are some good things that have become God things for Jonah? The obvious answer is the plant, right? That is his stated reason for being angry. In verse 9, he says, you know, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Okay. Do you, be angry? do you do well to be angry for the plant? He says, indeed I do. Uh, but we all know that it is sometimes the case that our stated reasons for why we are angry are rarely be the true reason or the actual root cause of our anger. Uh, it's not the spilled coffee. It's probably a lot of other things that came up before that that got you to this point, right? Uh, it's often just the last straw is what we're yelling about, right? Some of you can relate to this. It's okay. You don't need to say amen to things like that. That's all. Uh, my point is that the, the plant is not the core idol, right? It's the outward symbol. Nobody gets this bent out of shape over a gourd. Now, I enjoy gardening. I recently redid all our flower beds again because every year I lose about three-quarters of my plants. Um, just keep throwing money at it, I guess, right? Uh, I'm very accustomed to losing my plants. I do find that upsetting. Part of the rearrangement this year was I, I moved my fig tree that I had planted a couple years ago. I, I moved it to the front so it gets more sun. Georgia told me I needed to do that. And it always sprouts leaves, but it hasn't borne any fruit since we planted it. So yeah, we moved it, but I had to cut through a lot of its major roots to get it out, and I'm fearful of losing this plant. I hope it survives. But no matter what happens to my fig, uh, the loss of that tree is not going to lead me to a death wish. If it dies and I were to respond like Jonah responds about the gourd, that would be a symptom of probably a deeper problem. You understand what I'm saying? There would be an idolatry there for which the fig tree is just a surface issue. 
And likewise, Jonah's plant is only a symbol. It's the surface issue. And scholars disagree on, again, what this plant even is. The KJV calls it a, a gourd. The ESV footnotes argue that it's a castor oil plant. doesn't really matter. The issue is not the plant, but Jonah's attachment to it. Jonah loves this plant to the point of its being kind of weird. Verse 6 says he was exceedingly glad because of this plant, which is a direct contrast to his being exceedingly displeased in verse 1. His mood swing is incredible here. The Hebrew says that Jonah rejoiced with great joy over the plant. Jonah is downright tickled. He is giddy over this plant. Now again, I like plants too, but it's a little much, isn't it? That's because the plant is just a proximate cause of Jonah's joy and then his consequent grief. The issue is the idol underneath. Jonah is not a plant worshiper, whatever else he may be. So what's the core issue? What makes Jonah happy? Well, comfort. Comfort is what makes Jonah happy. That's why the plant came up. God sent it to save him from his discomfort. And that's what he's lost. And that's what stirs him to such rage. The plant was something that made him comfort. There's two things contributing to Jonah's comfort, two things that cheer him up when he's in a bad mood. He has the booth, and he has the plant. They're both designed to do the same thing, to save Jonah from the extreme desert heat. <coughs> they are both there to make him comfortable. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. No, that's why we say it. people have it made in the shade. Yeah, I get it, and I, I like the shade too. I don't like the sun, I've said this before. But there's an issue here of perspective. So Jonah gets his heart's desire in two ways. He's got the booth, which is the work of his hands, and he has the plant, which is a gift from God. Sometimes our idols are manufactured, sometimes they're God-given. And again, in either case are they inherently bad, but the good things become God things. Jonah's comfort has become a God thing for him, and it comes from a combination of his own hard work and God's good gifts. Because you have to think about it this way. I don't want to downplay boots, because Jonah probably spent nearly all day building this shelter, this boots out in the wilderness, right? In a foreign country. And if he's like any normal man, he was probably irrationally pleased with himself when this thing was done. Because that's how we always feel about every home improvement we do. Even when we go camping. Like, I never feel like more of a man than right after I've put up the tents and I've built the fire. I am, I am at my sexiest at that point. I believe that, you know, and I looked at Georgia like, what glad I did, and I just kind of, you know, that's how we think. We're men. We love admiring our own handiwork. And all of us are convinced we're the next pair of rills. So Jonah did his best to provide for his own comfort, and then it's almost like God seemingly comes in and like, oh, add a boy, Jonah, and compliments his labor by providing this plant now. And what a miraculous gift, overnight shade. What could be cozier between God's plant and my shelter? This is practically a palace. This little thing here, it's probably, you know, not much bigger than the pulpit, right? 
The plant is like the icing on the cake. And that's what makes this so great for Jonah. Why? Because it, it, it's a symbol to him that the world is as it should be. Me and God are working as a team to pursue the important mission, which is keeping me comfortable. What makes Jonah happy is the sense that God is in his corner and ready to keep him comfortable. That's what he values, and that's what his idol, idol is. Comfort and the sense that God is here to keep me comfortable. His comfort is something that he and God work on together. And this plays into Jonah's conception of God's justice, too. The fact that God has shown kindness to Jonah by giving him shade, and Jonah thinks, you know, maybe God is just after all. Yeah. It's almost like Jonah completely forgets about Nineveh's issues for a moment, right? Like, how else can you explain how deliriously happy he becomes? Like, well, forget Nineveh, as long as I'm comfortable, me and God are good. Jonah, so recently filled with righteous indignation, was so easily bought off with a plant. How shallow can this guy be? And then he loses the plant, and he develops an instant persecution complex. Just think of how ridiculous that is. Jonah gets swallowed by a sea monster, and he begs for deliverance. He begs for salvation. He prays in faith, right? But he gets a little hot in the sun, and he begs to die. It's the theological equivalent of crying over spilled milk. But for Jonah, the death of the plant means that his comfort is not a top priority for God. God gives him the plant. He gives Jonah his idol. He gives him the comfort. And then God proceeds to strangle the idol right in front of him. That, beloved, is how God exposes the idols of the heart. And it can get ugly sometimes. And what God does here as his closing, he's basically holding a mirror up to Jonah, right? And he's showing him just how shallow he is, just how flimsy, vulnerable, and pathetic in all his. Albert Harley was quoting C.S. Lewis on these matters a few weeks back. Talking about how Lewis wrote that we, we settle for lesser idols. He says that we're far too easily pleased. And that's true. And the corollary to that is that we are far too easily angered. Because the same silly idols that we live for are too small to satisfy us, but they're also easily swept away. So our idols are, make our happiness and our anger into like a revolving door. And this idolatry is not a victimless crime. Because first off, it hurts Jonah. Jonah's subtle idolatry makes him pathetic. He has this persecution complex. Jonah is like, he's the biggest snowflake in Scripture. It's hard to name anyone with a thinner skin than him. So when God asks him if he does well to be angry, the answer is obvious. Jonah is not doing well in any sense. So he is it's, it's harmful to himself. But his idolatry also hurts others. Consider this. That while Jonah is out here wrestling and resisting God, he has left Nineveh without any guidance, or any discipleship in the meantime. <clears throat> now, first off, he already did a pretty lousy job of evangelism, we said. But how helpful is he being in the aftermath of that by being out in this stupid hut east of the city? 
Do you realize how insulting it is for Jonah to go out and build a booth, a tabernacle, out on the hill instead of preaching in the city? Is that obedience? How can you reach a city you refuse to go into? Right. How can you disciple people from a mile away? How do you evangelize people you refuse to talk to? You can't go fishing in a desert. This booth, this tabernacle, is such a striking image. Jonah was sent to the biggest city in the world, and he goes camping instead. And there's no room for Nineveh in this booth. It's single occupancy. It wouldn't be good enough for you know Jonah to say, like, well, everyone's welcome to come to the booth if they want to. I'm not saying they're not welcome. If they really want salvation, they can come to me. We see what Jonah cares about. We know what makes him happy, and we know what makes him snap. We can see his idols. We see what he's passionate about. But how does that compare to what God cares about? It's not enough to just point out the idolatry. It's not enough to eradicate the idols. You have to replace it with true worship. Bob Dylan got it right when he said you got to serve somebody. I won't say Bob Dylan sang it, because whatever he does, I don't count it as singing. But but if not our idols, what will we serve? Whose passions are we going to pursue, if not our own? Well, it's a good time to ask, what is God passionate about? What is he interested in? What makes what makes God exceedingly glad? What does God care about? Well, thankfully, he answers that question kind of explicitly, doesn't he? He explains the parable that Jonah has been living, and he does so beginning in verse 10, again to the end. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The reward for the most abrupt ending of any book of the Bible goes to Jonah. It is kind of a funny way to end it. What does God care about? He cares about Nineveh, yes. But why? I think that's the interesting question, because we already know since the book started that Nineveh is the mission, right? But why does God care about Nineveh? He says he pities Nineveh. Nineveh, that great and strong city, the most powerful city in the world at the time, a city that on the face of it can certainly take care of itself. A city with immense power. They are the ancient version of a superpower, and yet God looks at them with pity. He feels sorry for them. Now, for Jonah, that sounds senseless because you're supposed to pity the weak, right? We don't pity the winners in life, do we? Nobody pities the Yankees. We pity the teams that suck every year, the underdogs, the Phillies, for most of my upbringing. 
They require pity. Why would you waste your pity on the big guys? And yet that's what God says. He says he pities Nineveh. And he tells us why. He gives us three reasons why Nineveh matters to him. One being that it is a great city. He says it three times in the book. For emphasis, every time God mentions Nineveh, he refers to it as a great city. Now, he obviously doesn't mean it's great in the sense of having a good nightlife, fine dining, and world-class museums. What he means is that it's big. That's why he gives that specific number, 120,000. Nineveh matters because there's a lot of people there. Now, that doesn't mean that God does not care about the small towns and the hamlets and the villages. Of course he does. And, you know, it's funny. We, we live in a time where urban missions has become fashionable in some churches and in some church circles, especially in the Reformed world. Uh, ministry in small towns is not trendy or hip. Very few of my Westminster classmates were actively planning to minister in rural America doesn't really happen. It's not a big aspiration for people. Uh, Westminster had a whole curriculum. You could, you could actually focus on urban missions. Uh, but they didn't have anything for like how to minister in Pennsylvania coal country. That just didn't come up much. I think that's a very unhealthy thing. I think the Reformed world needs to broaden its vision a little bit, but it's nevertheless true that God does have a heart for cities in part because that's where the people are. If you want to evangelize as many people as possible, it makes sense to go to cities. You go downtown. You don't go to a private development in the suburbs. You go where the people are. And the more people you have, the more need there is. And God cares about the numbers because they're not just numbers to him. It's not 120,000 as a just general statistic. There are names and faces associated with those numbers, and he knows them. They're not strangers to him. These are people that he created, individuals that he created to glorify him. There's no such thing as a crowd of anonymous faces to God. And God also says that he cares about Nineveh, not because they are better, but Actually, because they're worse. He says they don't know their right hand from their left. He cares not because Nineveh is clever and knows so much, but because they're ignorant. They don't know anything. The ignorance of the world is not something that repulses God. It actually draws him because it elicits his pity. The very things that lead us to have contempt for the culture around us is what makes God feel pity. So when we say that this culture is a mess and that they ruin everything and that they're wicked and that they're beyond hope, God looks and says, yeah, I know. I feel sorry for them. And whereas we sometimes say that in a patronizing way, he actually means it. It's not that the sin doesn't anger God. But he leads, his first step is with pity, because otherwise he would have destroyed everything already. He has far more right to be angry than you and I do, and yet he has pity, far more pity than we do. 
like we all know John 3.16, God so loved the world, but it's like we don't quite believe that. And then comes the kicker, the third thing, my favorite ending of any book, and also much cow. Can't forget cows. Granted, the king did command that the cows wear sackcloth, so I mean, I guess they were kind of doing their repentance thing. I still have some questions. Mainly, what the heck do the cows have to do with anything? A lot of commentators kind of breeze by that. Now, I know some Catholic and Episcopal churches do these, like, blessings of the animals, right? And you can bring your little rat dog blessed <laughs> by the priest. It won't cure him. He'll still be a rat dog. But now there'll be a rat dog that's been blessed. Um, I don't think that's what God is getting at here. I, I don't think God is making the case that animals are people, too, or anything like that. But it is worth observing that God not only takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he takes no pleasure in destroying any of his creatures, even the cows. And it should be obvious, but cows are more worthy of pity than a gourd. And it demonstrates Jonah's callousness that he doesn't see that. It made national news last month. Some of you may have seen there was an explosion at a meat processing plant in Texas that killed 18,000 cows. One person was critically injured. But the cows alone made national news. And even if they were all destined to be meatloaf, it's still kind of sad, isn't it? So yes, God has pity on all his creatures. But I think that the cows... Or more than that, cows are also the symbol of wealth and power and stacks. It's a status symbol. They're an image of prosperity. Because many cows means much milk, which means a lot of cheese, and there's a lot of beef. In other words, all the good things in life come from having a lot of cows. And there's a reason why the promised land was called a land flowing with milk because no one fought their way into Canaan for the soy products. <laughs> Much cattle means plenty. And there's a reason why when you're reading Old Testament scriptures, when they describe the wealth of any of the patriarchs, what do they do? They typically list how many, how many flocks he had, how much cattle he owned by the time he died, because that's a sign of man he had a good life. Much cattle means that Nineveh is a prosperous city. It's a city where people are well-fed, trade is bustling, which means that, in spite of their sin, Nineveh has been thriving on God's common grace. God has been good to them, and he's not exactly eager to just burn it all up. Now, of course, wealth is not a prerequisite for getting into the kingdom of God. Uh, nor is wealth promised to God's people in this world. Money is not everything. Sometimes it's a curse, right? And money does not influence God, but it also doesn't put you beyond God's grace. How often we, we think of that verse where Jesus says that it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, right, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But, like, you forget that, like, just a few verses later, he also says, you know, that that's, yeah, it, that's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
It's like we forget that those things were kind of tethered together. God says that the wealth and prosperity is partly why he's considered concerned for Nineveh. He doesn't have contempt for Nineveh just because they're prosperous. What he's saying is this city is a consequential city. This is where the goods are. This is where everyone goes to buy and sell and trade, which is why cities are typically where cultural trends get started, because the culture tends to begin in the city and work its way out. And that's why Paul focused his ministry in cities. And where does he go? He goes to the marketplaces where they're buying and selling cattle. That's where the wealth is. That's where trade happens. That's where ideas get exchanged. If you want to impact all the little villages, it's wise to start in the cities. And I can be certain that Nineveh's repentance surely had to have ripple effects that are going to land in the villages outside. But God is passionate about people. Big groups of people. Ignorant people. Poor people but also those who live in an affluent society, like we all do. We don't like to think of ourselves as rich. We like to have street cred and think we're not that well off. But we're doing pretty good by worldwide standards. He is passionate, even about people with wealth and influence, but with no sense of right and wrong. People who live in cities like Allentown. I've thought many times how fitting it is that Allentown is about the same size as Nineveh. 120,000 do not know their left hand from their right. Jonah is a fitting book for a church like ours, and in a season like ours, a church deciding where it wants to move, where we want to be, what we want to do when we get there. I think this book is a pretty stark contrast to churches that typically over the last several decades have been moving to the suburbs to get away from the city. You can't evangelize a city very well from the outside. It's hard to leave from behind. God cares about cities like Allentown, not because the city is pure and virtuous, but for quite the opposite reason. They are ignorant, they are confused, and they are like sheep without a shepherd. And our God pities them. Do we? What God cares about is seeing people like that get free from their sins. That's his mission. What makes God happy is when the ignorant masses repent and find freedom in Christ. What makes you happy? What makes us happy? What makes us angry when we feel like it's being threatened? What makes us too comfortable to bother with evangelism? What are the idols keeping us from pursuing God's mission? What booths have we built? What plants are we hiding under? What is taking our eye off the ball when it comes to the mission? What makes us happy? Cheryl Crow said, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But I think even she knew that wasn't true. That's kind of the point of the song when I was reading the lyrics. I'm not an aficionado. Beloved, this book of Jonah 
should have you questioning whether what makes you happy and what makes God happy are the same thing or even remotely in the same ballpark. What does this church exist for, if not to reach the lost? What makes us happy? This building? The style of music? Order of service? Particulars of our worship? What makes you most comfortable? And what makes you happy? And what makes you snap? I'll let you fill in those blanks. But we need to think about what booth we're hiding in, and we need to think about getting out of it. Because there's not room enough in the booth, and we are not called to camp in a holy huddle. We know, and it's sort of an open discussion, we've talked about the fact that our church is not really renowned for its evangelism. And so at the congregational meeting, the annual one, we even talked about starting an evangelism committee. Which I think is a great idea. It's a very Presbyterian answer to our problem. A committee can come up with ideas and strategies for outreach. But our problem is not a question of techniques. It's a question of commitment to the mission. Plenty of churches grow and evangelize without a committee to lead the way. It's a question of commitment to the mission. It means being more passionate about God's mission than our own comfort. So do we want to go camping or do we want to reach people for Jesus? Because, beloved, I'm telling you that we will never reach this city if our passion is for what makes us comfortable. That goes for all of us. This is medicine for me, too. If what makes us exceedingly happy is a pleasant place in the shade where we can watch the world burn and go to hell, then we're doing this wrong. And we will fail as a church. That doesn't mean that the capital C church won't succeed. The mission itself will always ultimately succeed because Jesus says he will build his church. But he will do it with other churches, not ours. And that's a sad thought. Now here's the good news. And there's always good news. The good news is that we are not beyond hope any more than Jonah was. And the best sign that Jonah learned and eventually figured this out is that somebody had to write all this stuff down. And it had to be Jonah, or at least he was the primary source. I mean, who else was there to give you an account of these details? This book is Jonah's confession. And he lays it all out in its ugly glory. And I think it's because he finally learned to care about what God cares about. So he sets forth his own story as a cautionary tale. Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, We have reason to hope that Jonah, after this, was well reconciled to the sparing of Nineveh and was as pleased with it as ever he had been displeased. And beloved, if there was gospel hope for Jonah, then there's gospel hope for us too. Because Jesus died not only for Nineveh, but for smug, proud, self-centered, comfortable believers like Jonah who had lost his sight of the mission and needed to recapture his first love. That's the whole purpose of chapter 4. 
But beloved, there is hope for Allentown. There's hope for Lehigh Valley Press. There's hope for you. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he distributes it so freely that it's scandalous. But that's good news for us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the account of Jonah. We thank you for the honesty, even the ugliness and pettiness of it all. But as we can relate more than we'd like to admit, Lord, you know me too well. I love to be comfortable. I don't like to be challenged. Lord, none of us want to really work hard. None of us want to pour ourselves into the mission. Lord, we are filled with fears and we are filled with distractions and idols. Lord, we pray that you would expose them in us. Show us, even this week, the idols that are stopping us from being committed to such a mission. To wanting to reach this city, to reach the lost here. Show us what's holding us back. Strangle those idols. And Lord, we thank you that this gospel that you call us to carry forth, Lord, it's for us too. It's good news for us every day. It's not just the first time we hear it. We thank you that you don't easily abandon your children, Lord. You never abandon us. You wouldn't even leave Jonah alone. Don't leave us alone either, Lord. Make us what you want us to be. We ask these things in Christ's name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here Peace.
Jonah chapter 4. Wait a minute, I'll do this again. See, I always make this mistake. I'll start in chapter 3, verse 10, just because that also gives the context. All right. When God saw what they did, Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. How many of you have ever had the experience of talking to somebody who was really passionate about something and you really didn't care? I do this to my wife daily, I think. It's a way of life. And, and it could be any number of topics. You know, it could be whatever, comic books, you know, computer games, Harry Potter, World War II history. It doesn't really matter. They're pets, you know, whatever. But... <laughs> This person's like really into it. And uh, it's a test of endurance, really, because you could not possibly care less. And um, I find I, I have those kinds of talks. They come up, you know, people will find out I'm a pastor. And they immediately think I'm going to be interested in their weird sort of like pseudo-religious, spiritual, psychological viewpoints and theories. And like, I have to act polite, but like, really, I just want to run, you know, and it's, it's, I just want the torture to stop. In any event, when these things happen... It becomes very clear very quickly uh, that what I'm interested in and what they're interested in are like worlds apart, right? Our, our, we have very different priorities, very different interests. Our focuses are very different. And, uh, you know, the things that we care about make us happy and such, right? Uh, they're just irreconcilable. There's nothing really to talk about, which is very different. And, you know, as I read this passage here, and reflect on it. Our study in Jonah, we're drawing to a close, and we see that Jonah and God are very different in a similar way. Uh, their interests, their focus, their priorities are worlds apart. It's like they're not even speaking the same language. What Jonah cares about and what God cares about are just not the same thing. 
Uh, and unlike our human relationships, you know, if someone starts talking about their hobby and you don't care, that's not a moral issue. It's okay that you're not into that thing, but I, and I guarantee you that you have interests that are equally stupid to them, right? But that logic does not apply to our relationship with God. Uh, if God is interested in something and you are not, the problem is with you. And it's not good enough to pretend you find it interesting. He tends to see through that, right? Like, you need to actually get interested. Uh, this morning we were talking in Sunday school about God having his values and priorities. We kind of have to get on the same page with those things. God has a mission. And if your priorities get in the way of that mission, then you need to get new priorities. If your priorities are getting in the way you probably have an idolatry problem. Jonah has an idolatry problem, which would probably come as news to him. But that's why he's so angry. It's because his idols are being threatened, or in this case, taken away. And what I want to do today is to contrast Jonah's priorities with God's, and I want to invite us to do some introspection as individuals and as a church. And I think... I want us to think about how we need to apply the message of this book. Because as I've said before, it's not an accident this book is in here. You know, I want us to walk away from Jonah with a clear idea of what this means for us today, because it's more than a tale about a man and his sea monster. The book is not about a whale, it's not even about Jonah, it's about God and his mission and how we, his people, resist that mission. And why? It's a book about the message of salvation and the idols that keep us from spreading it. The key idea in Jonah, we've said before, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's how Jonah ended his prayer in chapter 2, right? And it was really, that's like his only shining moment in the whole book, right? And I argued that that statement is actually kind of central to the Bible itself, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord and nobody else. And that means a number of things. It means, among other things, that we can't save ourselves. It means we can't save each other. It means God does not save us based on our ethnicity or our social status or our church attendance records or, thankfully, any of the rest of our track record. We have no control over salvation. Salvation is God's project and does not depend on us in any way. It's like Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So salvation is a God project, exclusively. He does it, he owns it, he makes it happen. It's his thing. And so one might say that God is slightly obsessed with this topic. He talks about it a lot, to the point it might drive some of us crazy. And some of you have wondered how I could have spent this many Sundays on a four-chapter book the way we have, right? I almost did another, but I stopped myself this week. But if you're tired of hearing me labor this point just in this one book, like, I mean, just, you know, imagine listening to God on the subject, right? God, he's fairly repetitive even within this book, isn't he? He, he says a lot of the same things. He, he does a lot of the same things. Like, when he commands Jonah in chapters 1 and 3 to go to Nineveh, he uses, like, identical language. We're repeatedly told that he appoints things. He, he appoints these terrifying and sometimes annoying things to happen to Jonah. Uh, he asks Jonah twice if he does well to be angry in a very similar way, right? He, he's like relentless in this book. He's repetitive. He's obsessed with this mission. It's his passion. 
And Jonah couldn't care less. He doesn't even pretend to be interested in this mission. And that's why God chose to tell this little parable in chapter 4. He wants to make the application obvious for us. And unlike Jesus' parables, this is being acted out in real life in real time. But God does this in part because his mission is not just to save Nineveh. The reason he goes to these lengths is because he's also got a mission to reclaim Jonah by exposing his idols and by extension exposing ours. So I want to start by looking at what makes Jonah particularly angry here at the end of the book. I want to look again carefully at verses 5 to 9. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and it came up over and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head, over his head to save him from his discomfort. So... Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. We know... That idols are, are we, we've said that those are idols are good things that become God things, right? Things that get the, the priority out of whack. What are some good things that have become God things for Jonah? The obvious answer is the plant, right? That is his stated reason for being angry. In verse 9, he says, you know, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Okay. Angry, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He says, indeed I do. Uh, but we all know that it is sometimes the case that our stated reasons for why we are angry are rarely the, the true reason or the actual root cause of our anger. Uh, it's not the spilled coffee. It's probably a lot of other things that came up before that that got you to this point, right? Uh, it's often just the last straw is what we're yelling about, right? Some of you can relate to this. You know, it's okay. You don't need to say amen to things like that. That's all right. Um, my point is that the, the plant is not the core idol, right? It's the outward symbol. Nobody gets this bent out of shape over a gourd. Now, I enjoy gardening. I recently redid all our flower beds again because every year I lose about three-quarters of my plants. Um... Just keep throwing money at it, I guess, right? Uh, I'm very accustomed to losing my plants. I do find it upsetting. Part of the rearrangement this year was I, I moved my fig tree that I had planted a couple of years ago. I, I moved it to the front so it gets more sun. Georgia told me I needed to do that. And it always sprouts leaves, but it, it hasn't borne any fruit since we planted it. So, yeah, we moved it. But I had to cut through a lot of its major roots to get it out, and I'm fearful of losing this plant. I hope it survives. But... No matter what happens to my fig, uh, the loss of that tree is not going to lead me to a death wish. If it dies and I were to respond like Jonah responds about the gourd, that would be a symptom of probably a deeper problem. You understand what I'm saying? There would be an idolatry there for which the fig tree is just a surface issue. 
And likewise, Jonah's plant is only a symbol. It's the surface issue. And scholars disagree on, again, what this plant even is. The KJV calls it a, a gourd. The ESV footnotes argue that it's a castor oil plant. doesn't really matter. The issue is not the plant, but Jonah's attachment to it. Jonah loves this plant to the point of its being kind of weird. Verse 6 says he was exceedingly glad because of this plant, which is a direct contrast to his being exceedingly displeased in verse 1. His mood swing is incredible here. The Hebrew says that Jonah rejoiced with great joy over the plant. Jonah is downright tickled. He is giddy over this plant. Now again, I like plants too, but it's a little much, isn't it? That's because the plant is just a proximate cause of Jonah's joy and then his consequent grief. The issue is the idol underneath. Jonah is not a plant worshiper, whatever else he may be. So what's the core issue? What makes Jonah happy? Well, comfort. Comfort is what makes Jonah happy. That's why the plant came up. God sent it to save him from his discomfort. And that's what he's lost. And that's what stirs him to such rage. The plant was something that made him comfortable. There's two things contributing to Jonah's comfort, two things that cheer him up when he's in a bad mood. He has the booth and he has the plant. They're both designed to do the same thing, to save Jonah from the extreme desert heat. <coughs> they are both there to make him comfortable. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. You know, that's why we say it. people have it made in the shade. Yeah, I get it. I, I like the shade too. I don't like the sun. I've said this before. But there's an issue here of perspective. So Jonah gets his heart's desire in two ways. He's got the booth, which is the work of his hands. And he has the plant, which is a gift from God. Sometimes our idols are manufactured. Sometimes they're God-given. And again, in neither case are they inherently bad, but the good things become God things. Jonah's comfort has become a God thing for him, and it comes from a combination of his own hard work and God's good gifts. Because you have to think about it this way. I don't want to downplay the booth, because Jonah probably spent nearly all day building this shelter, this booth out in the wilderness, right? In a foreign country. And if he's like any normal man, he was probably irrationally pleased with himself when this thing was done. Because <laughs> that's how we always feel about every home improvement we do. Even when we go camping, like I never feel like more of a man than right after I've put up the tents and I've built the fire. I am, I am at my sexiest at that point. I believe that, you know, and I look to Georgia like, what glad I did and I just gonna, you know, I, that's how we think. We're men. We love admiring our own handiwork. And all of us are convinced we're the next pair of grills. So Jonah did his best to provide for his own comfort. And then it's almost like God seemingly comes in and like, oh, add a boy, Jonah, and compliments his labor by providing this plant now. And what a miraculous gift. Overnight shade. What could be cozier between God's plant and my shelter, this is practically a palace. This little thing here, it's probably, you know, not much bigger than the pulpit, right? 
The plant is like the icing on the cake. And that's what makes this so great for Jonah. Why? Because it, it, it's a symbol to him that the world is as it should be. Me and God are working as a team to pursue the important mission, which is keeping me comfortable. What makes Jonah happy is the sense that God is in his corner and ready to keep him comfortable. That's what he values and that's what his idol, idol is. Comfort and the sense that God is here to keep me comfortable. His comfort is something that he and God work on together. And this plays into Jonah's conception of God's justice, too. The fact that God has shown kindness to Jonah by giving him shade, and Jonah thinks, yeah, maybe God is just after all. It's almost like Jonah completely forgets about Nineveh's issues for a moment, right? Like, how else can you explain how deliriously happy he becomes? Like, well, forget Nineveh. As long as I'm comfortable, me and God are good. Jonah, so recently filled with righteous indignation, was so easily bought off with a plant. How shallow can this guy be? And then he loses the plant, and he develops an instant persecution complex. Just think of how ridiculous that is. Jonah gets swallowed by a sea monster, and he begs for deliverance. He begs for salvation. He prays in faith, right? But he gets a little hot in the sun, and he begs to die. It's the theological equivalent of crying over spilled milk. But for Jonah, the death of the plant means that his comfort is not a top priority for God. God gives him the plant. He gives Jonah his idol. He gives him the comfort. And then God proceeds to strangle the idol right in front of him. And that, beloved, is how God exposes the idols of the heart. And it can get ugly sometimes. And what God does here as he's closing, he's basically holding a mirror up to Jonah, right? And he's showing him just how shallow he is, just how flimsy, vulnerable, and pathetic it all is. Elder Harley was quoting C.S. Lewis on these matters a few weeks back. Talking about how Lewis wrote that we, we settle for lesser idols. He says that we're far too easily pleased. And that's true. And the corollary to that is that we are far too easily angered. Because the same silly idols that we live for are too small to satisfy us, but they're also easily swept away. So our idols are, make our happiness and our anger into like a revolving door. And this idolatry is not a victimless crime. Because first off, it hurts Jonah. Jonah's subtle idolatry makes him pathetic. He has this persecution complex. Jonah is like, he's the biggest snowflake in scripture. It's hard to name anyone with a thinner skin than him. So when God asks him if he does well to be angry, the answer is obvious. Jonah is not doing well in any sense. So he is, he's, it's, it's harmful to himself. But his idolatry also hurts others. Consider this. That while Jonah is out here wrestling and resisting God, he has left Nineveh without any guidance or any discipleship in the meantime. <clears throat> now, first off, he already did a pretty lousy job of evangelism, we said. But how helpful is he being in the aftermath of that by being out in this stupid hut east of the city? 
Do you realize how insulting it is for Jonah to go out and build a booth, a tabernacle, out on the hill instead of preaching in the city? Is that obedience? How can you reach a city you refuse to go into? How can you disciple people from a mile away? How do you evangelize people you refuse to talk to? You can't go fishing in a desert. This booth, this tabernacle, is such a striking image. Jonah was sent to the biggest city in the world, and he goes camping instead. And there's no room for Nineveh in this booth. It's single occupancy. It wouldn't be good enough for you know, Jonah to say, like, well, everyone's welcome to come to the booth if they want to. I'm not saying they're not welcome. If they really want salvation, they can come to me. We see what Jonah cares about. We know what makes him happy, and we know what makes him snap. We can see his idols. We see what he's passionate about. But how does that compare to what God cares about? Because it's not enough to just point out the idolatry. It's not enough to eradicate the idols. You have to replace it with true worship. Bob Dylan got it right when he said you got to serve somebody. I won't say Bob Dylan sang it, because whatever he does, I don't count it as singing, but... <laughs> But if not our idols, what will we serve? Whose passions are we going to pursue, if not our own? Well, it's a good time to ask, what is God passionate about? What is he interested in? What makes, what makes God exceedingly glad? What does God care about? Well, thankfully, he answers that question kind of explicitly, doesn't he? He explains the parable that Jonah has been living, and he does so beginning in verse 10, again to the end. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The reward for the most abrupt ending of any book of the Bible goes to Jonah. It is kind of a funny way to end it. What does God care about? He cares about Nineveh, yes. But why? I think that's the interesting question because we already know since the book started that Nineveh is the mission, right? But why does God care about Nineveh? He says he pities Nineveh. Nineveh, that great and strong city, the most powerful city in the world at the time, a city that on the face of it can certainly take care of itself. A city with immense power. They are the ancient version of a superpower, and yet God looks at them with pity. He feels sorry for them. Now for Jonah, that sounds senseless, because you're supposed to pity the weak, right? We don't pity the winners in life, do we? Nobody pities the Yankees. We pity the teams that suck every year, the underdogs, the Phillies for most of my upbringing. 
They require pity. Why would you waste your pity on the big guys? And yet that's what God says. He says he pities Nineveh. And he tells us why. He gives us three reasons why Nineveh matters to him. One being that it is a great city. He says it three times in the book for emphasis. Every time God mentions Nineveh, he refers to it as a great city. Now, he obviously doesn't mean it's great in the sense of having a good nightlife, fine dining, and world-class museums. What he means is that it's big. That's why he gives that specific number, 120,000. Nineveh matters because there's a lot of people there. Now, that doesn't mean that God does not care about the small towns and the hamlets and the villages. Of course he does. And, you know, it's funny. We, we live in a time where urban missions has become fashionable in some churches and in some church circles, especially in the Reformed world. Uh, ministry in small towns is not trendy or hip. Very few of my Westminster classmates were actively planning to minister in rural America. doesn't really happen. It's not a big aspiration for people. Uh, Westminster had a whole curriculum. You could, you could actually focus on urban missions. Uh, but they didn't have anything for like how to minister in Pennsylvania coal country. That just didn't come up much. I think that's a very unhealthy thing. I think the Reformed world needs to broaden its vision a little bit. But it's nevertheless true that God does have a heart for cities. In part because that's where the people are. If you want to evangelize as many people as possible, it makes sense to go to cities. You go downtown. You don't go to a private development in the suburbs. You go where the people are. And the more people you have, the more need there is. And God cares about the numbers because they're not just numbers to him. It's not 120,000 as a just general statistic. There are names and faces associated with those numbers, and he knows them. They're not strangers to him. These are people that he created, individuals that he created to glorify him. There's no such thing as a crowd of anonymous faces to God. And God also says that he cares about Nineveh, not because they are better, but actually because they're worse. He says they don't know their right hand from their left. He cares not because Nineveh so much, but because they're ignorant. They don't know anything. The ignorance of the world is not something that repulses God. It actually draws him because it elicits his pity. The very things that lead us to have contempt for the culture around us is what makes God feel pity. So when we say that this culture is a mess and that they ruin everything and that they're wicked and that they're beyond hope, God looks and says, yeah, I know. I feel sorry for them. And whereas we sometimes say that in a patronizing way, he actually means it. It's not that the sin doesn't anger God, but he leads, his first step is with pity, because otherwise he would have destroyed everything already. He has far more right to be angry than you and I do, and yet he has pity, far more pity than we do. 
It's like we all know John 3.16, God so loved the world, but it's like we don't quite believe that. And then comes the kicker, the third thing, my favorite ending of any book, and also much cattle. Can't forget the cows. Granted, the king did command that the cows wear sackcloth, so I mean, I guess they were kind of doing their repentance thing. I still have some questions. Mainly, what the heck do the cows have to do with anything? A lot of commentators kind of breeze by that. Now, I know some Catholic and Episcopal churches do these, like, blessings of the animals, right? And you can bring your little rat dog to be blessed by the priest. It won't cure him. He'll still be a rat dog. But... Now he'll be a rat dog that's been blessed. Um, I don't think that's what God is getting at here. I, I don't think God is making the case that animals are people too or anything like that. But it is worth observing that God not only takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, he takes no pleasure in destroying any of his creatures, even the cows. And it should be obvious, but cows are more worthy of pity than a gourd. And it demonstrates Jonah's callousness that he doesn't see that. It made national news last month. Some of you may have seen there was an explosion at a meat processing plant in Texas that killed 18,000 cows. One person was critically injured. But the cows alone made national news. And even if they were all destined to be meatloaf, it's still kind of sad, isn't it? So yes, God has pity on all his creatures. But I think that the cows are more than that. Cows are also a symbol of wealth and power and status. It's a status symbol. They're an image of prosperity. Because many cows means much milk, which means a lot of cheese. And there's a lot of beef. In other words, all the good things in life come from having a lot of cows. And there's a reason why the promised land was called a land flowing with milk. Because no one fought their way into Canaan for the soy products. <laughs> Much cattle means plenty. And there's a reason why when you're reading Old Testament scriptures, when they describe the wealth of any of the patriarchs, what do they do? They typically list how many, how many flocks he had, how much cattle he owned by the time he died, because that's a sign of man, he had a good life. Much cattle means that Nineveh is a prosperous city. It's a city where people are well fed, trade is bustling, which means that in spite of their sin, Nineveh has been thriving on God's common grace. God has been good to them, and he's not exactly eager to just burn it all up. Now, of course, wealth is not a prerequisite for getting into the kingdom of God, uh, nor is wealth promised to God's people in this world. Money is not everything. Sometimes it's a curse, right? Uh, and money does not influence God, but it also doesn't put you beyond God's grace. How often we, we think of that verse where Jesus says that it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of the needle, right, than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But, like, you forget that, like, just a few verses later, he also says, you know, that that's, yeah, it, that's impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
It's like we forget that those things were kind of tethered together. God says that the wealth and prosperity is partly why he's considered concerned for Nineveh. Uh, he doesn't have contempt for Nineveh just because they're prosperous. What he's saying is th this city is a consequential city. This is where the goods are. This is where everyone goes to buy and sell and trade, which is why cities are typically where cultural trends get started, because the culture tends to begin in the city and work its way out. And that's why Paul focused his ministry in cities. And where does he go? He goes to the marketplaces where they're buying and selling cattle. That's where the wealth is. That's where trade happens. That's where ideas get exchanged. If you want to impact all the little villages, it's wise to start in the cities. And I can be certain that Nineveh's repentance surely had to have ripple effects that are going to land in the villages outside. But God is passionate about people, big groups of people, ignorant people, poor people, but also those who live in an affluent society like we all do. We don't like to think of ourselves as rich. We like to have street cred and think we're not that well off. But we're doing pretty good by worldwide standards. He is passionate even about people with wealth and influence, but with no sense of right and wrong. People who live in cities like Allentown. And I've thought many times how fitting it is that Allentown is about the same size as Nineveh. 120,000 who don't know their left hand from their right. Jonah is a fitting book for a church like ours. And in a season like ours, a church deciding where it wants to move, where we want to be, what we want to do when we get there. I think this book is a pretty stark contrast to churches that typically over the last several decades have been moving to the suburbs to get away from the city. You can't evangelize a city very well from the outside. It's hard to leave from behind. God cares about cities like Allentown, not because the city is pure and virtuous, but for quite the opposite reason. They are ignorant, they are confused, and they are like sheep without a shepherd. And our God pities them. Do we? What God cares about is seeing people like that get free from their sins. That's his mission. What makes God happy is when the ignorant masses repent and find freedom in Christ. What makes you happy? us happy? What makes us angry when we feel like it's being threatened? What makes us too comfortable to bother with evangelism? What are the idols keeping us from pursuing God's mission? What booths have we built? What plants are we hiding under? What is taking our eye off the ball when it comes to the mission? What makes us happy? Cheryl Crow said, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But I think even she knew that wasn't true. That's kind of the point of the song when I was reading the lyrics. I'm not an aficionado. Beloved, this book of Jonah 
should have you questioning whether what makes you happy and what makes God happy are the same thing or even remotely in the same ballpark. What does this church exist for if not to reach the lost? What makes us happy? This building? The style of music? The order of service? particulars of our worship, what makes you most comfortable, and what makes you happy, and what makes you snap, I'll let you fill in those blanks, but we need to think about what booth we're hiding in, and we need to think about getting out of it, because there's not room enough in the booth, and we are not called to camp in a holy huddle. We know, and it's sort of an open discussion, we've talked about the fact that our church is not really renowned for its evangelism. And so at the congregational meeting, the annual one, we even talked about starting an evangelism committee, which I think is a great idea. It's a very Presbyterian answer to our problem. A committee can come up with ideas and strategies for outreach, but our problem is not a question of techniques. It's a question of commitment to the mission. Plenty of churches grow and evangelize without a committee to lead the way. It's a question of commitment to the mission. It means being more passionate about God's mission than our own comfort. So do we want to go camping or do we want to reach people for Jesus? Because, beloved, I'm telling you that we will never reach this city if our passion is for what makes us comfortable. That goes for all of us. This is medicine for me, too. If what makes us exceedingly happy is a pleasant place in the shade where we can watch the world burn and go to hell, then we're doing this wrong. And we will fail as a church. That doesn't mean that the capital C church won't succeed. The mission itself will always ultimately succeed because Jesus says he will build his church. But he will do it with other churches, not ours. And that's a sad thought. Now here's the good news. And there's always good news. The good news is that we are not beyond hope any more than Jonah was. And the best sign that Jonah learned and eventually figured this out is that somebody had to write all this stuff down. And it had to be Jonah, or at least he was the primary source. I mean, who else was there to give you an account of these details? This book is Jonah's confession. And he lays it all out in its ugly glory. And I think it's because he finally learned to care about what God cares about. So he sets forth his own story as a cautionary tale. Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, we have reason to hope that Jonah after this was well reconciled to the sparing of Nineveh and was as pleased with it as ever he had been displeased. And beloved, if there was hope, gospel hope for Jonah, then there's gospel hope for us too. Because Jesus died not only for Nineveh, but for smug, proud, self-centered, comfortable believers like Jonah, who had lost his sight of the mission and needed to recapture his first love. That's the whole purpose of chapter 4. 
So, beloved, there is hope for Allentown. There's hope for Lehigh Valley Press. There's hope for you. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he distributes it so freely that it's scandalous. But that's good news for us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the account of Jonah. We thank you for the honesty, even the ugliness and pettiness of it all. Because we can relate more than we'd like to admit. Lord, you know me too well. I love to be comfortable. I don't like to be challenged. Lord, none of us want to really work hard. None of us want to pour ourselves into the mission. Lord, we are filled with fears and we are filled with distractions and idols. Lord, we pray that you would expose them in us. Show us, even this week, the idols that are stopping us from being committed to such a mission, to wanting to reach this city, to reach the lost here. Show us what's holding us back. Strangle those idols. And Lord, we thank you that this gospel that you call us to carry forth, Lord, it's for us too. It's good news for us every day, not just the first time we hear it. We thank you that you don't easily abandon your children, Lord. <laughs> you never abandon us. You wouldn't even leave Jonah alone. Don't leave us alone either, Lord. <laughs> Make us what you want us to be. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.